those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Maxi and Marine. And Marine! Yay! <laughs> Marine is here! Yay! Thanks, Maxie, for having me back. Oh my goodness. Anytime, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So we've definitely missed each other, but Marine's been doing some super exciting stuff. The- and she's got... Uh, what What do you have coming up? VegFest. So, yes, I do have VegFest. I'm speaking at Dublin VegFest on September 23rd or September 22nd. I don't know. I know it's the weekend of, I think, 22nd, 23rd. But I think the day I'm actually speaking is the 22nd. And I'm going to get to go to Dublin for the first time in Ireland. So I'm super excited about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about something I've never spoken about before. But Mexi. And I are going to talk about it today. So, so Spoiler I'm, alert. Exactly. Yeah, I'm happy about that because that'll give me good brain food for the talk that I must prepare coming up. Mm-hmm. And I have like a trillion things to do right now. So it would really have been more strategic to, you know, do a talk I've already done. But I guess I'm incapable of making things simple for myself. So... <laughs> I decided to do a talk about this instead. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about it today will get you super prepped and will hopefully inspire people to want to come out to your talk if they are in the Dublin area. Yeah. And come hang out with me too. I don't know anyone in Dublin and I would love to get coffee or dinner or dessert or something not to do with food. You know, I guess I can do that too. I would only enjoy food. Yeah. Like that is, yeah. I'm sorry to fulfill the vegan stereotype of that is literally how I travel a lot of times. Just like, pretty mm, much, great. yeah. Is it time to eat? I just go online and I'm like, where are the vegan yeah, foods? exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, come out to that. Yeah, definitely do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Yeah, so before we start, we have had some incredible donations that we wanted to shout out. So first of all, we got a one-time donation via PayPal, which was immense. So generous. Yeah, super generous from Sandro Eisenhower. So thank you so, so, so much. Also, we had a number of monthly patrons sign up to support the show, which is so very, very appreciated. So Thank you so much to Drew Langdon, Lori Steinert, and Kevin Fackler. Thank you so much. Yeah, if you'd like to support the show, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com, or you can sign up to become a monthly donor. And honestly, it really goes a long way to help keep the show going. So thank you all. So... Yeah, I guess we should just get into it then. Yeah, let's get into it. It's kind of hard to describe the topic that we're going to be talking about today because it's so complex. I was going to say it's huge. It's huge and people probably haven't heard of it, but it follows a book that Maureen recommended to me that was incredible called Immersion Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how did you come across the book? So actually, my one of my very best friends... Hi, Zavi, (laughs) sent me the book. Uh, Actually, no, it's funny because 
she, so I was in the U.S. just for a couple of weeks last November, and she kindly sent me a book to my friend's house, and the book didn't get there in time. Like, I had already left by the time it had gotten there, so mm-hmm. I ended up seeing this friend who she had sent it to this summer, and so she brought me the book, and the book was Emergent Strategy. And it came at a really, really perfect time. And I'm actually really grateful that I read it this summer and not last November. Mm-hmm. It's funny how life just has a way of doing that because it just like fell on my lap really at the perfect time. I had been just feeling a bit in a rut and wanting to seek out more creative outlets and not being so into content production, which I've briefly discussed on the show, but thinking like, okay, well, I want to challenge myself in a new way. And I really wanted to be creative. And I felt like I had been, I was so, so creative as a kid and as a teen. And I think, you know, we were all born creative, but then we're told that only some of us remain creative while the other ones just like lose that gift. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like reconnecting with the creative side of me. Mm-hmm. And I sort of radically got disinterested in pro- not well, I wouldn't say I got disinterested altogether in producing content, but at least in ex- I, I still wanted to explore obviously ideas about veganism and anti-capitalism and everything, but I wanted to do it in a different way and I felt like I was sort of stagnating where I was. And so I just started taking improv classes. So I did two things. I started taking improv classes. No, three things. I started reading fiction, which also I've discussed on the podcast. I started taking improv classes and I started the guitar. Mm-hmm. And I did all those things, I guess not like at once, but in in a matter of a few months, just because I really felt like learning something new and seeing what would come of that. Mm-hmm. And I got really into reading about creativity. I read this book called The Artist Way, which maybe listeners have heard about, just sort of like the Bible of people who, I guess, go on this path of exploration of their <laughs> creativity and try to re- rediscover and recover their artist self. So mm-hmm. I read that and then I just read a bunch of other books and then really fell down the rabbit hole of listening to only podcasts about creativity. And <laughs> um, and then this book came into my life and it was, so it's called Emergent Strategy and it really talks about creativity, but as applied to social justice and liberating our imagination in a radical way and also inspiring ourselves from patterns that exist in nature that can help us organize and form ecosystems in more sustainable, compassionate, creative ways Mm -hmm. to make positive change in the world. And this creative interest and this like political interest of mine sort of fused together perfectly in this one book. Mm -hmm. And, oh, and then I discovered social justice facilitation and I just got really into the idea of facilitation in general. I took a, um, a peer facilitated course of sorts in college that was just every week it's called femsex and every week we would meet and discuss a new topic each time that was linked to sexuality but other things as well like you know feminism and menstruation and boundaries and identities and desires and you know i was gonna say menstruation again So much menstruation. So much menstruation. And this course really, I I wouldn't even say it's a course. It was just like a bunch of, uh, in my group was only women, but it could be people of all genders. 
talking about these like thoughts and insecurities and societal pressures that at the time I was pretty young. I was like 20 or 19. I mean, I had just, I had just, uh, started going to college and it really radicalized my imagination and really changed my ability to love myself and know my truth. And Mm -hmm. this, what this book talks about also is that when we organize in communities, it's not just about the outcome. So often just the process and the conversations are what is transformative Mm -hmm. about meeting and about like organizing together. And I really, I really felt that in Femsex. And I've been thinking about that experience a lot as I read through this book, as Mm -hmm. it really was one of the most formative, radicalizing experiences of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. Yet everything that was happening was happening in real time. And I was like learning things about myself as I was learning things about others, not in a decontextualized classroom setting, but really it like flowed through me in this completely new way. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. it's just, I think that's so important and something that a lot of us in the online sphere really don't experience. And I I think, you know, especially on like Twitter, YouTube, or where a lot of these discussions go on. I mean, they're not really discussions, first of all. And then they're not really generative or, you know, collaborative or whatever. It's, It's almost even more alienating to be on those platforms because obviously there's call out culture. Obviously there's just a culture around like, being right and mm-hmm. and like owning the other person or just being like my way is the right way and your way is wrong or like sectarian shit like my strategy for revolution is better than yours and so like I will never be your comrade or whatever you know and I just feel like yeah this book honestly or everything we're going to talk about today I think has so much wide application and will be really useful to everyone in this movement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a big shoes to fill, but still, I think it's super important. Well, yeah, I was going to say, we're going to talk about a lot of ideas that really excite us, but Mm -hmm. we're not like, we also have all the work to be done about everything that we're talking about. And we were thinking about maybe recording another podcast later, actually trying out some of the, some of the ideas that we're going to talk about, like, instead of critiquing, really just partaking in a sci-fi experiment of imagining what new headlines would be like 50 years in the future if the change that we wanted came about or what mm-hmm. dif- you know what different realities would look like etc yeah yeah actually i also just read um staying with the trouble by donna haraway and at the mm. end of that book she does is that the mushroom one no that's anna singh but that's also yeah. a good one um but this one is it's about like making kin with fellow humans but also with all different species um i was kind of annoyed because there was like kind of no vegan message in the book even though a lot of the messages seemed to anyway it doesn't matter but at the end she does this (laughs) well yeah it does matter i was annoyed by that um but at the end of the book she does this kind of like sci-fi ish um dreaming of what the future world would look like and it's pretty interesting i mean it's kind of you know whatever you might like it you might not like it but just the act of doing that i thought was really incredible Mm -hmm. well a lot of this book is based on octavia butler's work who is a black feminist afrofuturistic sci-fi writer she died in 2006 
But Adrienne, so the author of Emergent Strategy, talks about her constantly. And there's mm-hmm. so many quotes of Octavia Butler. And she also actually co-authored a book called Octavia's Brood, where they do exactly that. I think it's two women or three women. And it's a series of short stories that is, yeah, exactly what we're talking about. So reimagining the future, what it would be like, what it would look like. Mm. And I'm really, I haven't read any of Octavia's work, Mm -hmm. but I really want to actually. Yeah, me too. I was also just thinking just now, um, probably Ursula Le Guin probably has some stuff as well, um, Mm. but I haven't read her stuff. Honestly, I'm so bad and I I really haven't read fiction in like a decade. Mm -hmm. So, but I would really like to, obviously. I think it's important too, Mm -hmm. to to be able to imagine that. So yeah, there's something so hopeful about realizing that we can have a radical imagination and that that can be a really Mm -hmm. powerful force of change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this book was so wonderful to discover and just really renewed my activism because Mm -hmm. I saw activism just as something really hard and grinding. And then hearing, you know, this queer black woman who's been facilitating social justice workshops for a really long time, just talk about how, you know, she she says at the beginning of the book that her default position for looking at the world is wonder. And mm-hmm. I thought that was so wonderful. Like, yeah, just looking at things around you and just marveling at the just the sheer miracle that is, you know, nature and humans and Mm-hmm. other animals and being really inspired like seeking inspiration from really tiny things and things that mm-hmm. are all around us mm-hmm. and I just got very excited by that and even that's something that I discovered in improv trying to get in touch with just my spontaneity and just doing a scene and realizing that oh we just have created this story that did not exist a minute ago and that won't exist again two minutes, two minutes into Mm -hmm. the future, but this is a new character that just sprang into life. And this is like me Mm -hmm. and my partner in a way doing something magical that no one has ever done before. And just discovering that, uh, rediscovering that youthful excitement about things and applying it to social justice has been really huge for me this year. Mm -hmm. And I really am excited to see where it takes me and where it takes us. Yeah, me too. I know. And I mean, we'll get into it a bit later, I think, but I know that on, on the left and like, especially the online leftist community, a lot of people are just really down. Like they're really cynical. They're kind of depressed. A lot of people have trouble with self-love and just feeling like they're doing enough in terms of trying to change the world. Like there's just this kind of defeatist attitude. And I think that yeah, what we'll be talking about today is just making it fun again. You know what I mean? Like making it exciting and creative and wonderful to be doing this stuff instead of draining and angering and debilitating, you know? So Mm -hmm. Adrienne Murray Brown talks about making activism irresistible and like Mm -hmm. something that is so pleasurable. I think she calls herself a pleasure activist Mm -hmm. that is basically so revolutionary transcendentally engaging that you can't look away from it and you can't Mm -hmm. stop being with it because she talks a lot about like activist burnout and Mm -hmm. activist spaces not being not always being great for looking about looking after each other and yeah I, I thought that was great there's also 
um, another facilitator, social justice facilitator that I've been into called Tanya O. Williams. And she did this interview where she said, you know, we need to, so her quote, more or less, uh, it's paraphrased, but she said, let's have fun in this together. If we cannot have fun, the revolution slash liberation will not happen because we will be pulling from empty places that will not heal anything. Mm -hmm. And she also says, if you are trying to bring someone into your space, you have to believe it's a good place to be. And Mm -hmm. that really spoke to me Mm -hmm. as, yeah, I mean, Obviously, mm-hmm. she's right. You know, we need to yeah. make this a good place to be for people to come on to to want to come in. You know, and that doesn't mean yeah. tone policing people, or that doesn't mean all these things that I think we're very quick to jump to in social media lingo. Uh-huh. But it just means coming from a place of abundance and compassion and love, and yeah. trying to do that. And when someone's having a hard time being doing that, being there for that person and trying to heal them. Mm-hmm. And she also talks about. Um, taking a doctor's oath when she facilitates conflict or like diversity workshops in other, in other spaces, you know, she says, you know, I see the oppression and I try to come at it from a place of compassion, but she Mm -hmm. also just says in general, as people who want to make the world a better place, every time she takes an oath that every time she says, every time I move into a space, I am to do no harm. Mm -hmm. And if I have done harm, then I need to like try and repair it and stay there until it's healed and that that is what liberation is about and that's what liberatory work should should be always aiming to do mm-hmm. and I thought that was a great concept because we're so quick to like take you know kick people out of communities and have these massive pretty violent takedowns of people and really mm-hmm. not applying our principles of transformative justice to mm-hmm. how we govern our own spaces. So yeah, no, absolutely. So I think we're kind of like just <laughs> nerding out on all the big ideas right now. Like, so maybe really? um <laughs> like seriously nerding out and I'm sure probably the audience is like having a hard time following. <laughs> so um why don't we start I guess with what is emergence and then we can talk about how this applies to the leftist movement, the vegan movement in terms of combating things like individualism, hero worship, call out culture, and then yeah, we can kind of go from there. So mm-hmm. Maureen, what is emergence? So emergence, everybody, is <laughs> so this is a definition by Nick Obelensky, but this is the one that Adrian Murray Brown gives in the book. She said, he says, emergence is the way complex systems and patterns arise out of multiplicity of relatively simple interactions. So it's the way that we can learn from the world all around us how best to collaborate and strategy for building complex patterns and systems of change through relatively small interactions and through adapting and collaborating with each other. Mm -hmm. And It's also very based on this concept of biomimicry, which biomimicry is the imitation of models and systems and elements of nature for the purpose of solving complex human problems. So all along this book, she talks about plant species, animal species, etc., various ecosystems that rely on on, on collaboration in order to... Mm -hmm be resilient and in order to keep spreading and 
surviving and Mm -hmm. discusses how we can learn from that also. Yeah. So like flexible, adaptive kind of collaboration. So I think one of her things were starlings murmurations. So you have this group of birds, you know, flying together and they are moving in sync, but also there's so many twists and turns and whatever they're able to adapt and flow in whatever direction, you know, the whole, the whole um, murmuration is going. And so Yeah, I thought that was kind of a good analogy or a good kind of visual of the ways that we might want to be together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think at that point, I'm trying to flip through exactly where that, uh, because I completely remember loving that example, but, well, I can't find it, but even though I have literally like 25 post-it notes in this book, well, that's probably actually why I can't find it. Um, So she says a lot of uh, birds during migration just have this sort of pull, this sort of intuition where they all guide each other to the place where they need to go. And they Mm -hmm. work. She also talks about the V formation of birds. You know how birds fly in Vs a lot of times and how, you know, even though there's one person, like one person, yes, animals are people um at the beginning of the v how every like how every set of birds behind them is actually benefiting from a reduced friction of the air because they all Mm -hmm. because like the wings and the movement of the bird before it allows Mm -hmm. it to be directed and also to have less resistance on its wings does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no it's like drafting like if you're biking behind someone you can draft them you know yeah and i i know that like you know the biomimicry thing it can be problematic as well because obviously there are so many things that go on in nature that aren't necessarily what we might want to mimic or you know you could use that a lot of people would use that to be like well in nature everything is competitive and it's a dog eat dog world or all that kind of crap which yeah we've talked about in another episode about competition that it's not but also we are the only species on earth that competes when it is not necessary to do so so even though other species you might see them you know quote unquote competing But they only do that when it is necessary to be doing that, Mm -hmm. which it is not for us. And there's a quote, she says, we could reason our way to more sustainable processes, but we use our intelligence to outsmart each other. We compete for fun and for ego. And I feel like that is so apt. Mm -hmm. And we also compete within our movements. We compete within different sections of our movements. And that's why we're so divided. Mm -hmm. Also, a ton of species actually collaborate. And I think there's examples of ants in their colonies and fungi and all of these other examples. So the point is not like to mimic nature exactly. It's to think more along the lines of what is the problem that we are facing and has anything in the natural world been able to solve such a problem and how did they do it and what can we learn from that and you know this it's not about you know you have to base everything that you're doing off the natural world it's just if we're having uh, an issue or if we're trying to think of ways to come together in flexible adaptive relational ways and compassionate ways are there different different examples in our natural world that can help us imagine a solution for ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
There's a great quote on page 86 by Carissa Lewis that says, In nature, everything works in collaboration. There are hummingbirds and flowers that are in such deep coordination they need each other for survival. How vibrant and alive and successful could our movements be if we moved with such coordination and collaboration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also a lot of kind of related to what Donna Haraway talks about in her Making Kin. It's that the survival, like we can't think about the revolution and creating a, a better world to live in as separate from other species on the planet. So like our survival also depends on the survival and the connections and the relationships that we have with trees and animals and different species. So like we're either all going to survive. Well, not all of us are going to survive because a lot of species are going to go extinct just from climate change and all of that. But, you know, it's not like we're operating our social justice movements or our vegan movements or our leftist revolutionary movements in this vacuum where like we are just operating as humans on the earth and the earth is not part of this or other species are not part of this. So in her concept, it was like the idea of making kin and revolutionizing our relationships with all those species really matters. And so I think that does make sense that we could look to what different species in the natural world are doing and start to not model our behavior off of that obviously because we have to find like our own way but to learn from what's going on there and to consider that social justice and you know the world that we want for us in the future has to also radically reimagine and make kin with different Mm -hmm. species in the world Mm -hmm. and she talks about this concept called fractal Maybe it's not a concept. I think it's like a thing that people in the science world know about. But yeah, it's basically a fractal is a curve of geometrical figures, each part of which has the same statistical character as the whole. So examples are snowflakes or crystals or galaxies or even ferns like plants. Mm-hmm. Basically, the idea that the image that we see replicates itself like millions and millions of time within that thing. So if you think of a snowflake, like the shape of the snowflake is replicated, like, I don't know how many times in the actual tiny, tiny particles and atoms of the snowflake. God, I don't know anything about science, but you feel me? (laughs) (laughs) And she says, existence is fractal. The health of the cell is the health of the species is the health of the planet. Mm -hmm. And she also talks about wavicles. So this is something quantum physicists talk about, I believe. The idea that a wave is made of tiny particles, but it's also made of waves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but even just imagining like waves in a body of water, you know, it's like it's one cohesive, adaptive, ever-changing element, but also yeah. made up of like trillions and trillions of tiny particles. Right. Yeah, exactly. So when you're watching the ocean waves, you see something that's very physical going up and down. And you kind of imagine that that's everything like water is just this big clump that's moving together. But actually, it's a bunch of tiny particles that are moving in the Mm -hmm. same kind of way. And then yeah, the fractals like in terms of what I understood is what you said basically was that in a snowflake, yeah, each tiny crystal within that snowflake is the exact same as the the entire snowflake. Yes. Which kind of blew my mind. So it's a bunch of the exact same thing making up a big thing that looks exactly like all the tiny parts. And 
we need to mirror what you know how our communities look on the small scale in order to affect change on the bigger level mm-hmm. also we need to really look out for each other and care for each other and and create a little mini version of the world that we want to see and have that power our hope to change the world Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she says, we typically have charismatic leaders, top-down structures, destructive methods of engaging conflict, and unsustainable work cultures. If we aren't able or if we don't live our solutions locally and joyfully, we won't be successful at implementing a just governance system regionally, nationally, mm-hmm. or globally. So basically, it's like, if we're gonna, we got to build out these tiny particles that are going to make the large thing that resembles these tiny particles. Otherwise we don't like, how are we going to get there? So she says on page 153, one of my favorite ways of understanding nature, creating more possibilities is to watch water move through the world. Water creates the ways for itself, moving with gravity, moving around obstacles, wearing down obstacles, reshaping the world. When there isn't an overt way forward, water seeps into the land, becomes a vapor in the sky, freezes into ice. When the time comes, water moves across the land in cloud form and nourishes elsewhere. And of course, we humans are mostly made of water. And look how many ways we manifest. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so cool. Like, I was like, yes, <laughs> we are made of 99% whatever water. Like, mm-hmm. even if we want to think about ourselves as separate from nature, I mean, even this whole discussion of should we model ourselves according to what's going on in the natural world mm-hmm. is a little absurd because we are part of the natural world and we are part of these mm-hmm. ecosystems, whether we, whether we want it or not. And just thinking about water and how much water moves in and out of us constantly and even in between our cells and our organs and how the world has like one supply of water that just constantly shifts and appears in all these different forms. Mm-hmm. And- yeah. And like all the bacteria and everything that's in our bodies that also makes our bodies work and everything. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I don't know. I was just kind of walking downtown and uh, because I had just been up north in kind of the woods and then I was back in the city and I was just kind of looking around and everything just seemed really weird. And I just started thinking about like, yeah, we're this, like, we're obviously the only species that, I mean, other species are self-aware, first of all, but I mean, we're, we're the only species that thinks of ourselves as, you know, outside of nature. And I was thinking that a lot of that has to do with our economy, you know, mm-hmm. because it's just like, we kind of, we have all these buildings, these stores, we have people driving around in their cars going to do these things like for work, for money, for whatever. Like we're the only species that does anything close to this that like has money or like mm-hmm. has any of this. So of course we don't imagine ourselves as part of being in an ecosystem because we imagine that our entire economies and our jobs and our everything are just happening. And then like nature is just a backdrop for our economies and our lives and our everything but it's just Mm -hmm. so unnatural like it's just Mm -hmm. really unnatural that we're doing any of this (laughs) like often I look around me and I think okay I think about this thing as a computer I think about this thing as a house I think about this thing as a glass of water but Mm -hmm. really the all the matter in on earth was already there we're just transforming it into different Mm -hmm. into different objects and creating the illusion First of all, of scarcity, of scarcity, but also of 
production, as if we can produce anything that is actually, that has nothing to do with what was there before. But the reality is that all this matter was there before, Uh you know, we're just transforming it in these really harmful ways. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Really harmful ways, just like for our own Mm -hmm. fucking convenience. So here's, this is one more nature quote before we move on from this too. I think it's related. It's nature has taught me so much about moving with the seasons that we need to honor times of harvest and times of rest, that the frenetic pace of doing, doing, doing without being present with each other and the season that we're in, what is happening around us is unnatural and counter to life. So it's made me realize how important community, ceremony, and celebration is to our efforts to transform the world. And that really hit me because I was just, yeah, I'm super stressed (laughs) right now. If anyone has talked to me at all, I'm just doing, doing, doing all of these jobs for like no money. (laughs) You're Um, just throwing in all the problems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh but yeah just this frenetic pace of doing without being present without actually living with the seasons at all just kind of trying to block out the seasons like right now it's raining it's going to be snowing soon in the winter and it's just trying to block all of that out so that we can go and work for a capitalist it's just so unnatural and i think that in our movement spaces we're kind of replicating that too like i you know in the online spaces we're not really present with people we're not present really when we're sitting around on twitter or whatever um even if we go out to like rallies or we're there to like react to these fascists and that's good work that's very good work but i also wonder like i don't know like is that being present with each other like is that building relationships or is that building like just a very particular relationship that has an immediate goal but isn't really like dreaming together for a future and then working Mm -hmm. to build that future you know yes completely and what you said about just reacting to things that are being presented to us is really really hard to stop doing naomi klein talks a lot about this the concept of disaster capitalism and presenting us with these crises all the time that we're just constantly stuck in reacting to Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and what she says about mirroring what we want to see out into the world in our smaller communities she also talks about it as decentralization and how this whole idea that there is like one leadership that people should follow has really it's an illusion because that's not we're all creating change all the time everything we do creates change and every change affects us too so we're in the symbiotic relationship with everything that's going on around us and everything that we're doing to that environment and she says instead we should aspire to leader full communities and she also takes an example from nature to describe this but she talks about geese she says when a goose is injured during migration two geese will land with it and stay until it is healed or it dies then catch up with their flock flocking is fundamentally about decentralizing the efforts for safety and trusting leadership to come from any edge of the flock i know that is so sweet that just made me think a lot about (laughs) Our social justice movements and expecting to just be caught and be supported all the time while we're fighting for Mm -hmm. change. And what would be possible if that were really the case instead of, we, we just invest so much in 
individual leaders in our movement and not really in the broader vision mm-hmm. for change. I feel like all of the like major um, tendencies on the left are based around some kind of charismatic leader like Mao or Stalin or I don't know whoever mm-hmm. you know <laughs> like some anarchist and it's so and- the case in the vegan movement so the case I mean, there's just so many, there's just so much hero worship. And even in the online leftist community, there's also just a bit of hero worship around different people who represent different tendencies as well, right? And there's a quote that she has here that's, We lived through a good half century of individualistic linear organizing led by charismatic individuals or budget building institutions, which intend to reform or revolutionize society, but fall back into modeling of the the oppressive tendencies against which we claim to be pushing. Some of those tendencies are seeking to assert one right way or one right strategy. Many align with the capitalistic belief that constant growth and critical mass is the only way to create change, even if they don't use that language. And I think that's just, that just, yeah, it just, just really hit me. I was just like, wow, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That is what we're doing <laughs> on the left. There are so many people or just so many groups who think that there's only one right strategy to lead us to revolution. And there's only one right way that the revolution should happen or that the future society should look and that we already know it. Like imagine the arrogance of thinking that we already Mm -hmm. know it, you know? And it's like, we're just looking to the past and copying rather than thinking of creative emergent strategies for the here and now and for abundant futures that spring Mm -hmm. from the here and now. Because like a lot of people, you know, a lot of like Marxist-Leninists, and I'm not bashing any of these tendencies or whatever, but a lot of their rhetoric is around practicality. So like this is the only practical way to get there. And anyone else who doesn't join this way Mm -hmm. is being impractical. And so it's just kind of written off. And then, you know, anarchists will say the opposite of like, well, no, we have to build the world we want to live. Doing it that way leads to tyranny and et cetera. And of course, we can look at the past and we can learn from the past and you know what worked there what didn't work what was ineffective what led to tyranny etc but at the end of the day like we don't we don't know what's going to work in the here and now the economy is so different everything around us is so different so people who are just so stuck in this idea of one right strategy i just think we have no humility and that's one thing that she talks a lot about in terms of emergence that we need to have the humility to think that everyone is my teacher and Like doing my PhD, the more that I learn, the more that I realize I don't know. So that's why people always ask me, what's your tendency? I'm like, I'm not going to come out and say that like, this is me and I have the answers. Like I'm open to Mm -hmm. learn from everyone is my teacher and Mm -hmm. we have to think Mm -hmm. about today, you know, with humility and building relationships, not just like critical mass and following things Mm -hmm. that are already established because that's a capitalist thing to prey on our imagination and to make us think that you know we have to just get good at doing what's already been done get really good at doing that because Mm -hmm. that was possible but just leave the impossible alone like leave imagining Mm -hmm. alone leave Mm -hmm. anything else alone it's frustrating a space to be in it is nature reminds us that that's not even the most practical way to do things. And that's actually not a way that 
complex ecosystems work ever, you know? So many of these movements are focused on the most, on critical mass, on the most practical and quick and urgent way to get somewhere, whilst completely neglecting the glue that is supposed to hold this community together mm-hmm. or is supposed to make people want to join this movement. Yeah. And just regaining an awareness of, yeah, of like fractal, of honoring the small, of being hum- humble and, and having humility for the unknown and concentrating mm-hmm. on transforming yourself, but also mm-hmm. really looking out for the people around you. Mm-hmm. She says two things that I remember marked me. The first is we should all move like waves, like our communities are our organizations should move like waves and that we should move at the speed of trust. Mm -hmm. And she also talks about that up until now, our relationships have been miles wide, but inch deep. Mm -hmm. But if we could instead focus on relationships that are inch wide and miles deep Mm -hmm. and stop being so obsessed with spreading productivity and efficiency and critical mass and and endless production right because critical mass building critical mass means that you already have the the plan like i already have the answer i already have the plan and i'm just going to go out and try and get a lot of people on my side so that we can maybe like maybe convince enough people for them to want to do it but if we can't then we're just going to get a bunch of guns and force them to do it you know which is like okay but like that's not building together that's not being immersion that's not being flexible that's not being humble that's not building something that's not dreaming together and then working towards that dream from the bottom up that's mm-hmm. that's arrogance you know so she says the strength of our mm-hmm. movement is in the strength of our relationships which could which could only be measured by their depth scaling up would mean going deeper being more vulnerable and being more empathetic so instead of starting with this grand idea which is often just modeled off the past. So it's like looking to these old things that happened and worked or whatever. And then or like often it's just looking to like the Soviet Union and being like, yeah, okay, we're going to just do that again. And so let's get a critical mass of people to get that happening instead of focusing on like focus on relationships. While being so shitty to each other. So shitty. Mm-hmm. So shitty. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I'm privy to like, you know, on like Discord and like different group chats and stuff. People are just dicks. Like no one's building, like no one is starting with the genuine relationships and then like working on like dreaming together in the here and now. They're just like, Mm -hmm. well, it's already been dreamt for us in Mm -hmm. the like a hundred years ago, Mm -hmm. literally a hundred years ago. So let's um, let's just do that again, and let's just build critical mass instead of critical connections. And I think it's futile. Yeah. At this point, yeah, she, I don't know. she says something like, "There's so much urgency in the multitude of crises that we face all the time that we tend to forget that urgency thinking, aka constant unsustainable growth under capitalism, is what got us here in the first place." And so that we need to seek solutions that don't pull from the same logic and be brave and and imagine new ways of, of being. She also says, 
We need to cultivate our patience and thoughtfulness and seek the wisdom of those not already part of our movements, not to get them in step with our point of view, but because we need their lived experiential wisdom to shape solutions that will work for the majority of living beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I get so much like I did that video on like identity politics and leftism or whatever and got a lot of pushback. But my main point in that was that, yeah, the more people and the more diverse set of people that are involved in the movement and the foundation and the dreaming and the creativity from the start, the more that you are going to ensure that you're going to create a future that does work for Mm -hmm. everyone and Mm -hmm. that is just, you know, and there's there's actually more that we agree on than we don't, I think, you know, and it's just a lot of it comes down to practicality or strategy, which is what we're talking about today is like alternative strategies to these strategies that mm-hmm. keep us in this deadlock. Because we all want the end of capitalism. We all want a productive, like sustainable future. We all want social justice. So it's like, let's forget about <laughs> like like practicality. Um, I just don't think that that is actually very practical in Mm -hmm. the 21st century. I really don't. And I think that even if it is, it builds, you know, one version of the future. But is everyone included in that? Mm -hmm. Is that really the best that we want to imagine for the future? I would think not. I think that we can imagine, you know, much better. I think we can imagine much more sustainable, um, much more democratic, much more decentralized, everything, you know. Mm -hmm. So... Anyway, I think, yeah, reclaiming imagination and creativity, I think, is key, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is something that she talks about a lot, too. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk at the end of the podcast about really great examples of people who have done this and of Afrofuturism in particular, because mm-hmm. um, we're, we're not saying that no one has done this. We're just saying that that like we need to do more. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. People are definitely doing that, but I just think in the mainstream movement, we're still kind of stuck in hero worship. We're stuck in the past, and we're stuck in critical mass instead of critical connections and relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially like in you know as when I was reading that quote on how we need to be inspired from other people's point of views, I was thinking about like the white centric vegan movement. Mm. and how i mean it's so focused at like you know critical mass like how will we get over 10 percent so that everyone goes vegan or how are we going to create this like new sci-fi-ish fake meat so that people can just trade it in their burger and not even notice the difference Mm -hmm. um but so whilst they're fighting for this vision of what a vegan world would look like they are reproducing so so many hierarchies shutting out the voices of people of color mm-hmm. it's like a super male centric movement um that doesn't have a lot of diversity and obviously there are so many so many diverse points of views of people fighting for what a me- vegan world would mean to them and incorporating mm-hmm. like their particular culture into it and their lived experience and saying like hey no for veganism to work for me this is this is how I'm going to implement those ethical principles into my life. And then certain people get on their high horse saying like, no, that's not good enough. Or that's not what veganism is. Mm-hmm. But yet they still claim that they're going to be able to make the whole world vegan according to their tactics. Mm-hmm. But how can you do that if you're being so shitty to 
people within your own movement. You know, it makes no sense. No, it's like really divisive. I mean, there's a lot of examples of people like that in our movement right now. I'm thinking of like vegan gains and people who are just super toxic and Mm -hmm. (laughs) alienating people. And then people defend them being like, well, you know, they're doing so much. They're bringing all these males, these white males into the movement that probably otherwise wouldn't be here. And it's just like, well, (laughs) that's not a good thing if you're alienating everybody else and shitting on everyone. Like, that's terrible. Plus, you're attracting new recruits to the vegan movement in the most, like, sexist, racist, ableist ways. And then you are surprised when the vegan movement is full of, like, racist, sexist, ableist assholes. It's like, well, maybe... You shouldn't recruit it. Right. And then people aren't really very turned on by it. Also, it's not generative. Like, it's not immersion. It's not innovative or creative. It's once again, here is my vision. Here, I already know the vision of the future. This is the vision. And it's a purely capitalist corporate vision of just making a bunch of vegan products and getting everyone to buy those. And then that's their fucking vision. That's it. But of course, that's what it is because it's a bunch of rich white men who are being funded by all of these, you know, different companies, different whatever corporations. And so that's the model that we're working with. So once again, it's just like the sectarian left Mm -hmm. where instead of generating ideas together or being humble or making connections and relationships, it's like, here's the idea. It's a capitalist vision of veganism, and we're going to get there by holding a bunch of really expensive conferences and dinners where people are going to come and pay like $2,000 per plate, and we're going to raise a bunch of money, and then, yeah, just corporatize and expand Mm -hmm. veganism in the market. Yay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there is something to be said for... They're existing all different types of – there's not obviously one solution and everybody is going to fight in their own ways. But the big Mm -hmm. problem with so much of what you were describing is that those people are also simultaneously like shutting out so many people who – like they're not applying the – the importance of critical connections in Mm -mm. within their own community, you know. And so you're Mm – so whatever version of veganism you're preaching is – is not going to work and is also going to reproduce the same oppression that Mm -hmm. that you use to like get to the position you're in yeah and also you're you end up competing with your comrades like you end up competing with your allies so there's so much infighting between the vegan gains version of veganism and then intersectional veganism like Mm -hmm. how many goddamn back and forth videos have there been being made about this is the intersectional version and Mm -hmm. this is the version that thinks that intersectionalism is fucking bullshit and Mm -hmm. whatever and it's just like why are calling it intersectionalism like come on guys yeah or like the intersectionalist approach which was goddamn nonsensical so yeah like why are you fighting your allies about this like we need to learn how to grow through fusion and not competition Mm -hmm. you know not everyone's going to agree but I don't understand how we think that we're going to be infighting I mean I I said this people have said that they wanted me to put this on a t-shirt and sell it but in one of my Q&A's I was like these may not be the comrades you want but by god these are the comrades you've got (laughs) like like they just they are you know so it's like let's find a way to grow through fusion emergence creativity you know adaptation and not just this like stern 
arrogant, I know the way and I'm going to just get a bunch of people on my side. And if you get in my way, if your group gets in my way, then I'm just going to like gun you down or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you said really reminds me of a quote that I'm trying to find in here, but she says exactly that. Like we can't <laughs> people forget that we don't we don't have the luxury of working with these perfect humans that we've designed that would be on board yeah. with everything that we're saying. Like that is what movement building and fighting for change is. It's working with people in your community that are flawed and imperfect and have mm-hmm. their own visions of reality and you're flawed and imperfect and it's just Mm -hmm. a whole big hopefully beautiful productive mess you know yeah so yeah trying to move away from trying to impose your idea on everyone else Mm -hmm. and like working with others to build that common space together or build ideas together you know Mm -hmm. and it's it's difficult it doesn't always work your people you're you're gonna disagree of course you're gonna disagree Mm -hmm. And that's okay, but like, how can we make disagreements and conflict generative instead of totally destructive and making us splinter off into smaller and smaller groups that can't get anything done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She also copies a post that was made by a person called Ryan D. Dahlstrom, who is speaking about this trend in the queer community. And the post is pretty long. I'm just going to read the end. Um, It says, by making these public attacks on each other, we are engaging in the same disposability politics of capitalism and the prison industrial complex that we purport to be against while feeding into state surveillance tactics that are monitoring how we are tearing each other down. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was such a great point. Like when we are always asking for receipts, 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 and dissecting people's internet histories and micro-policing what they've said in the past and then not applying our ideas of transformative justice and instead of, I guess, being there for them or they're understanding how this person – or trying to get that person to change, violently ejecting them from the community that they were in mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know doing these character assassinations and mm-hmm. and how that's actually reproducing the prison industrial complex and the whole way that things are policed and the whole like mm-hmm. you know surveillance state that that we live in it's breeding a culture of fear and secrecy and isolation and shame mm-hmm. that will not be productive and it also makes the movements about individuals again like it also yeah. like and i feel like that was one of the the problems with 20th century socialism it's that the movements became so wrapped up with these charismatic leaders that if you could poke holes in the leader then that means that the entire mm. movement is bullshit and that yes. we shouldn't keep trying to do that and so you see that all the time even just online i mean these are not huge leaders these are just people on youtube or whatever but you just see it all the time and it just becomes about the person instead of the ideas and the community yes. and then if you can tear down that person then it means well everything that they've ever said is bullshit now because i tore them down and so i'm not going to believe in that or i'm not going to join that movement you know and it's like the movement wasn't about them like think critically about the ideas and about the community that you want to build 
Yes. I think about the celebrity culture that we have in veganism where people where celebrities go vegan and then they are like well veganism didn't work for me and they're not vegan anymore how many times do you oh my god you're so many people after come up to you and like (laughs) try to poke holes in like your veganism or say like veganism just doesn't work because it didn't work for this one person whereas if we didn't identify the vegan movement with these celebrities or and and also feed it by rejoicing whenever a celebrity goes vegan in the community Uh then it it wouldn't matter if someone was no longer eating plant-based or so you know like it that's that's like so not what veganism is about right and that's also just defining veganism as your consumption list or whatever so it's just like okay it didn't work for them but it's like veganism should be a political stance so fine. What does that mean if it doesn't work for them? That means that they just don't actually care about commodifying animal bodies and exploiting animals. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, because as long as you're taking a political stance against that and implementing that in your life, then that's good, you know? Mm -hmm. So seeing it as a diet and not a political stance is what leads people to be like, oh, it didn't work for me. It wasn't really a good diet. It's like, well, it's not a fucking diet. So Mm -hmm. yeah, anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. So going back to what we were saying earlier about imagination and creation, something I really liked that Adrian says is all organizing is science fiction. Mm -hmm. Social justice work is about creating systems of justice and equity in the future, creating conditions that we have never experienced Yeah, well, I just wanted to talk a bit about this idea of imagination and reclaiming imagination. Mm -hmm. So she had some quotes here that just were really moving to me. Um, So she says, imagination has people thinking that they can go from poor to a millionaire as part of a shared American dream. Imagination turns brown bombers into terrorists and white bombers into mentally ill victims. Imagination gives us borders, gives us superiority gives us race as an indicator of capability. I often feel that I'm trapped inside of someone else's imagination and I must engage my own imagination to break free. We are living now inside the imagination of people who thought economic disparity and environmental destruction were acceptable costs for their power. Imagination is one of the spoils of colonization, claiming who gets to imagine the future in which geography. Losing our imagination is a symptom of trauma and reclaiming the right to dream the future, strengthening strengthening the muscle to imagine together, and she says as black people, but obviously I think as all people, um, is a revolutionary decolonizing activity. Mm. And I was just like, boom. Yes. Because I feel like I, you know, my imagination has been so colonized. So colonized. (laughs) You know, I'm just super radical, but um, I guess, you know, in years of academic research, (laughs) yeah, my imagination has been colonized i can think i can think very clearly of how to do a really great critique of capital i can think very critically about different social justice issues um but i have not flexed my like imaginative mm-hmm. muscle in so long mm-hmm. and that's why when people ask i mean i we already did a podcast called uh, the eliminated Bl- blueprint to end capitalism in which we just said basically you know, we don't have one or like, we don't like, we can't, you know, you and I, Mexi and Marine can't come up with this blueprint. And I think that's true that we can't, but we can start imagining together, mm-hmm. you know, which I think that people are doing, but I don't think enough people are doing Yeah, that. Yeah. We should start that. We should yeah. start like 
brainstorming and getting excited about solutions and bonding through them. Yeah. Or like I just had a meetup with um, a bunch of leftists in Toronto and, you know, we, we always just talk politics and obviously we're just critiquing everything and how bad everything is. But I feel like we should have groups like that that get together to just dream together mm-hmm. and to just, you know what I mean? Just to think of uh, amazing possibilities mm-hmm. and write them down. And, cause, and start uh, practicing I, them in whatever way you can in your life. Exactly. Because another thing that Adrian Brown says is that if we have no dream destination, then yeah, we aren't moving towards anything in particular. We're just in reaction, which I said before, but we are. That's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And if we're constantly in a state of reaction, then we're not building. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a lot of people in the movement feel kind of alienated. And it's because we're not dreaming together and we're not we don't have like a we have a momentum against capitalism, but we don't really have a momentum towards mm-hmm. something in particular, you know, yeah, and a momentum that's really self-reflective and yeah, s- strong. She says also, shifting our way is our tangible outcome. And I really like that instead of thinking the outcome is like some solution that we need to apply or we need to get a critical mass to get a lot of people on board and that is the outcome also just like shifting the process of like changing and connecting with each other and moving towards a common goal and a common just Mm -hmm. like imaginative happy place (laughs) is is our outcome Mm -hmm. exactly exactly I think, again, that I think people, a lot of people kind of do have an idea of what they want to move to, but it is very rooted in, you know, things that happened in the past. And I just think we need to kind of let go of that. Like we can learn from those systems and move in the future, but things are so different now. Like if we're really wanting to look at the material conditions and like implement historical materialism, then we need to look at the material conditions of today, which I don't think people spend enough time doing. And also even our Mark Fisher talks about this in capitalist realism that even our, you know, unionizing and everything, we need to get creative there too, because otherwise we're just going to end up demanding old forms of exploitation. You know, like we see that right now we're living in this hyper flexible, contract-based, terrible gig economy job market. And we're thinking, okay, people are just fighting for, you know, more security within this capitalist framework. You know, it's just, we're basically just demanding old forms of exploitation instead of um, getting creative about what is possible in the future. Mm So, yep. And that's not pleasurable. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not pleasurable at all. I also wanted to shout out Afco and Silco because they wrote a book called Afroism where they talk about Afrofuturism and veganism and they actually call themselves, I believe, I hope I'm not butchering this, but um, architects that we need to all be architects of the future and that we need to come up with, yeah, new imaginations and new ways of getting there and Mm -hmm. new theories that can allow us to connect you know af talks about afco and silico talk about um how it's not enough to just fight for veganism as this like outside thing of just caring for animals but how can we really reapproach and reconnect the theories of discrimination in human communities and discrimination in nature and in animals and Mm -hmm. 
obviously, you know, they focus a lot on the animalization of black people and mm-hmm. how that is such a powerful and revolutionary way of thinking about veganism and mm-hmm. of like connecting it with everything else that's going on because it is connected, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that, but that book is amazing and I need to read it again because it's so good. I need to read it. I haven't even read so it. So good. Oh my God. We've gotten some requests to do a podcast about that book. So mm. I should probably read it. Oh yeah. I would totally <laughs> read it again with you. Yeah. I've been, I've been wanting to reread it. I lent it to yeah. Lucy. Lucy, give it back. Give it back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And so Adrian also talks about other other uh, iterations of Afrofuturism. So she says, lately I've been obsessing over the Afrofuturism and justice orientation of slave era blacks because our situation today feels so terrifying and exhausting and sometimes hopeless and there's so much trauma and grief to bear and yet we survived that, not individually but collectively. Not all of those black people were Afrofuturists, but to focus on Afrofuturists in the black social justice tradition, I would note that Africans leaping off as slaver ships were Afrofuturists. Slave era parents teaching their babies a foreign alphabet in the candlelit dirt were Afrofuturists. Mm-hmm. Black women dissociating themselves through to tomorrow while being raped into motherhood were Afrofuturists. Those who raised the children of violence and those who chose not to all were predicting the future and articulating their choices. Slaves who ran to freedom and slaves who ran to their deaths were Afrofuturists. It's the emphasis on tomorrow that centers the dignity of that seed, particularly in the face of extinction, that marks for me the Afrofuturist. God, I just got so emotional reading that. I know, me too, yeah. Um, And another quote that that I loved, um, she says, We are creating a world we have never seen. We are whispering it to each other, cuddled in the dark, and we are screaming it at people who are so scared of it that they dress themselves in war regalia to turn and face us. Because of our ancestors, because of us, and because of the children we are raising, there will be a future without police and prisons. Yes, there will be a future without rape, without harassment and consent, fear, and childhood sexual assault. A future without war, hunger, violence, with abundance, where gender is a joyful spectrum, where my nephew would not be bullied for his brilliant differentness, where each of our bodies is treated like sacred ground, whether we have insurance or not. Mm-hmm. Visionary fiction includes sci-fi, speculative fiction, fantasy, magical realism, myth, all of it. In addition to this intentional genericide, visionary fiction intentionally explores how change happens from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love the starting of that quote. I was going to put that in a post and share it because I was like, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, we are dreaming of future together. We are creating it. And people are so scared that they're putting on freaking ridiculous war regalia and turning to face us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> on the next page, she says, science fiction is not fluffy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah, no, it also reminds me of Donna Haraway's book. I keep saying that, but mm-hmm. um, that's what she was talking about, too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, she she talks also about Black Lives Matter. I, I've seen her talk about Black Lives Matter in an interview. I noticed that she talks about it in this book, but she talks about it, well, as, you know, Afrofuturistic because they're, um, you know, Black Lives Matter is asserting a reality and a belief that is not the norm today in white supremacist mm-hmm. logic. And so that that's a form of Afrofuturism. Um, Mm -hmm. but she also talks about it to discuss decentralization and how black lives matter. Like there is no one leader or one person that makes decisions. It, it really has spread because there's so many different chapters and so many iterations of this powerful Mm -hmm. vision that black lives matter and black lives will matter. And Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) that black love matters and black power matters and all this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, she talks about, she, she talks about that as, a really good example of the things she discusses in this book. She also mentions the Occupy movement. She says Occupy and Black Lives Matter are two large-scale recent efforts that take this collaborative ideation to a movement level, proliferating futures from a place of possibility of multitudes of multitudinous paths forward towards a shared dream. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of I, I mean I can think of a lot of um organizations in even Toronto that I think are are kind of like that or getting really good at this decentralized kind of mode of governance mm-hmm. um but I guess we just need to work on yeah and Tifa actually right? yeah yeah I, exactly there's a lot there's a lot in um even in my areas so, but I think we need to, need to work on um I guess building those relationships out further and making relationships with more people instead of just yeah, trying to get numbers or critical mass, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and making it pleasurable. Totally, and that's why <laughs> I've been so into this concept of facilitation, um, because she's a social justice facilitator, and she talks about yeah, making it pleasurable and 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 facilitating conflict with people and being a good mediator and ideating together, etc. And mm-hmm. That's something I, I spoke a, a while back on this podcast about this like animal gathering that I had been to that was just focused. That was, that was really, it did not go well. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of these three terrible days that we had all spent together, <laughs> um, people, you know, the organizers wanted to just generate a list of outcomes or like this charter that we could post online of things we had accomplished. And that was such mm-hmm. an example to me of, of bad facilitation, first of all, but of really underestimating just being like, okay, all the people in this room have kind of the right politics, right? They're vegan and they're anarchists. And let's just try and come up with outcomes instead of trying to connect with each other Mm -hmm. and having, Mm -hmm. as Adrian says, shifting our way, be our tangible outcome. And then we'll see where that takes us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, I know. And she has a really great quote that I think that I quite liked that, Facts, guilt, and shame are limited motivations for creating change, even though those are the primary forces we use in organizing work. Mm. I suspect that to really transform our society, we will need to make justice one of the most pleasurable experiences that we can have. And yeah, I just think that's so great. I just, I love how a lot of the book, I mean, she's talking about enjoying the present moment and like strategies for self love and like strategies for letting go and all of this stuff. And you know, after talking to a lot of 
young, mostly, you know, cis dudes, but a lot of young people in this movement, yeah, they, they're feeling really depressed mm-hmm. and they're feeling really overwhelmed and alone and having trouble with self-love, having trouble with being present. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's obviously understandable, but that's also like, if we just have a critical mass of people who are alienated who don't love themselves who are depressed who are you know like we're, who have like read marks but who have read marks like we're not that's not a pleasurable place to be that's not a place where you want to i mean you want to make connections with other people but you don't feel equipped to do that or you don't you're not in a personal place in which you are able to do that mm-hmm. and it's not fun and then mm-hmm. i feel like in a place like that it's hard to imagine Because imagination, like being creative and being imaginative and everything, like if your thoughts are are centering around like cynicism and depression and just how bad things are, then it becomes – you don't have that kind of like joy or or wonder or happiness that you want to be like, okay, let's imagine a beautiful future. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? (laughs) Or yeah. Yeah. And I think there is – I mean, I guess, yeah, I'll speak for myself, but when you are aware, I mean, granted, I'm so privileged, but I I still am aware that the system is crap and very invested in like learning and fighting climate change and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, income inequality and racism and sexism, et cetera. Sometimes I feel guilty for Mm -hmm. not, not, but, but I think that sometimes being optimistic and being creative sounds hard and sounds almost like something that that's wrong for me to Mm -hmm. try to attain because like there's so much horrible shit going on all the time. So it's like this constant tug and tug and pull between this really horrific reality that makes me want to be super cynical and crawl into a hole and die. Yeah. And also this side of me that wants to believe in love and in collaboration and wants to, I mean, the future is kind of the only thing we have, like the future hasn't happened yet Mm -hmm. and we all get to shape it in our own way. And that's pretty cool. And that's a responsibility that we should take seriously. Mm -hmm. And I get really excited thinking about that and hopeful thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. I'm (laughs) a tough balance. Yeah, it is a tough balance. I mean, I'm probably one of the most cynical people ever. I mean, I'm just like, I've always just been kind of a depressive, sarcastic biatch. (laughs) But, um, but also, but people always ask me, you know, well, how do you keep going? And for me, that's never even kind of a an, an option to not keep going, you know, because I'm just mm-hmm. like, like you said, the future hasn't happened yet. I know what we're up against. I, I am full of compassion and love. I am full of, you know, joy for life and everything, or, you know, I, I, I guess. Well, so you're not just a cynical biatch. I, yeah. I'm not just a cynical biatch. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a lot less cynical than you say that you are. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm fair I'm fairly cynical, but I'm also like my cynicism or my my acknowledgement of the seriousness of the situation we're in doesn't make me feel like I should just crawl in a hole and not do anything. That makes me feel mm-hmm. like okay, I I should be out there doing whatever I can, and it's not something that has to be depressing. I mean, it is it is. I understand that it is depressing. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, but I, I just kind of feel like, but what else is there other than coming together and trying? What else is there? Mm-hmm. Nothing. So yeah. let's do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So yeah. 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 Oh, another idea. Another idea that I really loved from this book. Can you notice a trend? <laughs> we've been for like an hour and a half. We've been like another idea, another idea, another quote, yeah. another quote. But like, yeah, this book has been rocking my world for like six months now. So very excited to be doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was I even saying? I was saying that there was this quote in the book, uh, not by Adrian. I'm forgetting who it was by, but it said something like, "You didn't come here starving. You were born full," mm-hmm. and this idea that we all have we all have what we need to generate a future of abundance and to like be mm-hmm. res- like be abundant ourselves and she also links this to biomimicry by talking about butterflies and how they're born in these cocoons and they're just like a bunch of goo <laughs> but they already have everything that they need to make their wings and become butterflies that fly Mm -hmm. and how that should be a lesson in realizing that we already have everything we need right here in ourselves and in our spirit. Mm -hmm. Obviously I'm not talking about, we don't have all the material conditions we need. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Spiritually. Exactly. But just this idea that like you need to ground yourself in your truth and in your, Mm -hmm. Yeah, in your spirit, um, because you know that is the well that we need to pull from when we come up with with visions of the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and freaking love yourself totally, totally. And and why should we be letting? Uh, sorry, different point, but like, why is like creativity and innovation something that is so tapped into by like you know right wing mm-hmm. like, innovation Silicon Valley assholes? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. It's like, I I was telling this to Maxi earlier, but imagination and creativity and innovation, I'd always kind of written them off as, well, not not when I was a kid, but I had come to be super cynical about them because I just associated it with like this flashy capitalistic Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. delusional optimism of like creating new technology that's like going to save us Mm -hmm. and save time and blah, blah, blah. And I just realized, no, like I shouldn't be writing off creativity as a whole just because these assholes have, sorry, I shouldn't be saying they are assholes. We we are practicing compassion. All right, fine. But like, yes, it's an asshole system for sure. And um, so innovation is kind of like, well, that's like, that's not for us. That's just for like profit seeking capitalists. That's just for a smaller smartphone with no headphone jacks. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's just going to, just going to create planned obsolescence eventually. Um, But like, yeah, I love how Adrian Marie Brown talks about like all these all these iterations of innovation and of creativity and imagination in these really radical ways like Afrofuturism and people overcoming like the worst of the worst of the worst and creating Mm -hmm. something like beautiful. And think about how many amazing legacies of creativity we have in in the arts, you know, like jazz and yeah, totally. Beautiful forms of dance. I mean, even like I just did a video on UBI and Le Salaire à Vie and... Yes, great video, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but even that, I mean, UBI, I mean, who was thinking about that 100 years ago, you know? I mean, probably somebody, but 
And then Le Salar la Vie is totally different than that. So it's just, mm -hmm. you know, we have all of these ways of being creative in the here and now, and that's not the limit to it. Like, yeah, we can totally harness creativity for revolutionary projects and not just stupid gadgets that we can have, you yes. know, that doesn't transform anything. Mm -hmm. Sidebar, I think um, I, I at the meetup, I didn't watch this, but Elon Musk was on uh, Joe Rogan, I guess, recently um, mm -hmm. and smoked a joint or something. Um, oh, how radical. I, yeah, I really cannot watch stuff <laughs> like that. But anyway. I, I feel like now YouTube has become just like stupid debates uh -huh. or videos of elon musk's productivity <laughs> yeah. and his morning routine and his night routine like yeah elon musk is all i see on my fucking feed when i go to YouTube. i know <sighs> but so anyway so i guess he had said something like oh yeah britain is such a materialistic country it's so great for innovation what because like people want so much stuff oh. there, like they they constantly want to buy stuff, so it's just really great for innovation. Wow. And so that's just an example exactly. of like how yeah. this totally has just been co opted to be like, really, is that innovation? Developing new stuff for people to buy that's cool and kitschy, like that's what it is. No, it's not. Yeah, we are the innovators of the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's like marketing, you know, innovation is just leveraged yeah. for new ways to convince people to buy shit that they do not need. But yeah, you, you, we're going to have to keep getting very creative about that when we're in the midst of the worst environmental crisis ever. Yeah, seriously. How are we going to alter people's imagination so that they do yeah. not give a fuck about that and want to buy the next Tesla that comes out? Exactly. You know? Fucking so right. Yeah. Let's innovate. Let's we got to improve our smartphones even more. Even more. This is what we need to innovate. Yeah. We need new apps. We don't have enough apps. We need someone to come up with a better app. Someone get an app to fix climate change, guys. Uh, oh, so sad. It really is. Anyway. Anyway. So the a few last things I wanted to say, I don't know if you have more. Um, but one thing I really what I really liked was the idea that this goes ties into humility and how I don't think anyone on the on in the online left has a ton of humility these days. But being wrong can be a fertile place for connecting with and receiving others. And it's just like, yes, we don't have to be right all the time. It doesn't have to be embarrassing for us to be wrong to the point that we have to just defend yes. ourselves so violently right away. Like we don't have to just jump to defense. We don't have to do any of that. Being wrong is more than okay. Yeah. Just saying, you're right. That's a good point. I didn't look into that. People are people can't do that. When they're presented with something, they're just like, oh, well, what about this? Or what about this? Or it's just like, okay, what about nothing? Just, you know, let's just connect in this way that it's like, okay, thank you for doing mm -hmm. that. And now we can we can build something together in a productive, generative way. Yeah, I feel like it's because we also have this culture that anyone who has ever been wrong is no longer worth listening to. Yeah. You know, so you have to defend, like claw your way to try to prove that you were somehow <laughs> right. And right. also, you know, activists or leaders in the past who have been wrong have just, a lot of times we, you know, they fall from a pedestal and they're humiliated and shamed. And it's like uh -huh. everything that they've ever said or done now is not worth listening to or not worth being grateful for because they were wrong about this one thing. Yeah. 
No, that's so true. I mean, people talk about Marx that way all the time. It's just like, well, no, he wasn't right about this. Like, okay, I guess that means his entire life's work is meaningless. Then like, what are you talking about? You know? And so I just had this example that I was at this conference recently. Uh, It was a North American conference on conservation biology. And we had uh, the indigenous circle of experts there doing Mm. presentations on indigenous protected areas and alternative sustainabilities, alternative worldviews, like not the colonial capitalist worldview, but alternative worldviews that put humans as integral part of ecosystems and just have, you know, a different way of relating. Um, So anyway, they did this wonderful presentation and then this horrible, pompous, oh my gosh, just this awful old white man not that it matters that he was old but old white men dominate our society through and through and make all of our decisions for us so he gets up and an indigenous person had already gotten up and given a really great statement um just kind of echoing what the presenters had said and this man gets up and starts to be like, well, I'm going to disagree with everything you just said about like indigenous sovereignty or about, you know, all, you know, conservation and colonialism and capitalism or whatever. And he pointed to like, one or two examples in the historical record where uh, indigenous or like hunter gatherers had moved, like they moved to this one Island and then the, this bird species went extinct. So therefore I don't think that any of this is worthwhile. <laughs> and that, like, about the real that, problem is, you? yeah, exactly. And it was just like, why would we center, like, why would we even listen to an indigenous worldview because they did this or some kind of crap. And the whole the whole place just like, gasps. Like we were all just like, <gasps> like, it was just this really ignorant comment. And the presenters were just amazing. Like so amazing. They thanked him for, you know, bringing up these points that were, I, I didn't even go into it. Like I didn't do it justice what the comment was, but you know, they thanked him and they just used that as this jumping off point to make these really great explanation and then you know everything was just diffused it was just really wonderful and I was just like yes you know like conflict doesn't have to be something that shuts us down and I mean obviously if there's a lot of emotion like if you're part of a marginalized community and you're being attacked verbally or something like that I don't I'm not saying that that's a great time to (laughs) you know be calm and forgiving and loving I mean it is but also it's uh, obviously I'm not gonna say that people should be doing that but I'm just saying you know there are so many opportunities for us to connect and receive others and you know build on that and we don't usually take those opportunities that well Mm -hmm. yeah that that was so that was a great story I remember you telling me about that you were just like, it was amazing. They were just so patient and they just explained yeah. it so well. And, you know, yeah. we need to be better at doing that. And they and they pointed to, they were like, okay, well, these things you brought up are a good point. So let's go from there. And they could have just been like, sir, that was awful. Yeah. Please leave. And you know? everyone in that room would have probably been like, damn right. Like, walk well, Everyone would have applauded. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It is so, I mean, it takes a lot of bravery and patience and generosity to explain to someone why their oppressive point of view is wrong. What I liked or what I kind of took out of this book was that in order to kind of be creative about the future, 
the questions that we ask ourselves are also mm. very important. So instead of asking these huge abstract questions like how do we overthrow capitalism, which is just so big that it becomes paralyzing and people are just like, well, I don't know. I guess we'll just do what they've done in the past. We can ask questions like, how do we shift into a culture in which ego doesn't dominate? Mm. How do we start making genuine connections with one another and learn to share with each other mm-hmm. or to genuinely take care of each other? Like, what will our networks look like? How do we shift into a culture in which conflict and difference is generative and not destructive? And like when we imagine the world that we want to shift towards, are we dreaming of being the winners of the future or are we dreaming of a world where winning is no longer even necessary because there are no enemies? Mm. And like if there are no enemies, like how do we get Mm. there? And certainly not creating enemies and like colo culture. That's not how we're going to get there, you know? Mm -hmm. She talks about – so Adrian talks about an exercise that can be practiced in social justice uh, facilitation, which is called time – travel newspaper headline exercise and it's basically what it sounds like uh with your group members you come up with yeah like you pretend to time travel in the future and come up with headlines that could be in the newspapers then that would be you know like you try to create the future so that the headlines would reflect that vision and Mm -hmm. like what they would Mm -hmm. actually say and i was suggesting to mexi right before this podcast that that might be a fun I mean that would be challenging but that would be fun like yeah yeah what what would be be cool even if is is if we come up with like three headlines for example and we don't talk about it beforehand and we Mm -hmm. can tell each other like blah 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 (laughs) this headline Mm -hmm. and discuss that vision Jordan Peterson recants his all meat diet after suffering six months of severe illness and tells the entire world to go vegan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that would no, be, be really fun. But even like for big things like climate change and um, totally. you know, the refugee crisis and everything. So yeah. Absolutely. Let us know if that is an episode you'd like to hear. Yes. Let us know. Um, so the, yeah, that's kind of all I had. It up. Yeah. Basically go out and buy emergent strategy right now. <laughs> yeah. And start making some connections. Start making critical <laughs> connections. Um, <laughs> love yourself. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Hopefully that was productive for everybody yeah so hopefully there are good quantifiable outcomes that we can yes, make some good money exactly off of. <laughs> worship us as the leaders <laughs> <laughs> and then tear us and then tear us down when we say something wrong yeah. <laughs> and then abandon the movement <laughs> yeah yeah that is how we're gonna form good allegiance yeah we've been told but yeah, and and I've totally, oh god, I've totally done some of this this stuff. Oh, all the time, many a times, <laughs> yeah. many a times. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably I'm still doing it. Yeah. So anyway, let us know in the comments and everything if you thought this was productive, if this was inspiring at all, if you thought it was total crap, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye.